God's good all the time. Uh, I'm going to pull up a document here that I'm going to share with you on, there we go. Uh, I'm an evangelist, and when I teach on the subject, I usually divide it into three sets of teachings. The first is the message, and then the motivations to evangelize. Uh, the methods. Well, you can't do all that in a 25-minute teaching, so I've chosen one teaching, and it's about holiness unto the Lord. It really fits under what is the gospel message, and being holy is absolutely good news. That's what the God is doing with us fallen creatures. I want to start at the bottom of this outline, and uh, because life really begins here, let me pray first before I start talking to you. Father, we join our hearts together during these 10 days that we might walk in holiness, that we might present a message in our words and in our life that proclaims uh, God is holy. And we're to uh, walk in that same spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're going to help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a teaching that I call a, a holy pyramid because it starts with a real wide base. And uh, the base is that you and I as human beings and as Christians are only down here on earth for a very, very short time. So I'm typing in key word. The word is brevity. Doesn't fit very well. Our life is so extremely short. I, in my study, I found 26 little pictures that God has given us to help us grasp just how brief our life is down here on earth. Starting at the Psalm 39 says, your life, my life, uh, is measured with the smallest measurement in the Bible. It's called the width of a hand. And your life, in God's perspective, and should be from ours, it's the width of a hand. Uh, the writer goes on to say, our human existence in its duration is like nothing. It's like a breath. It's like a shadow that passes across the ground. And, and we're like a sojourner that comes and stays and is gone again. And God gives us these little pictures so that with our, our finite ability, we can get a little bit of an understanding of just how we contrast human life on earth for you know 60 70 100 years compared to eternity and the destinies of heaven or hell now the illustration i like is a, a big heavy frying pan has a handle on it and only dad or mom can lift it but the child can put his hand on the handle and feel a little bit of the weight of that frying pan so these pictures are god's handles to us to help us just feel a little bit of the brevity of our human existence. Uh, Moses wrote Psalm 90, and he got in on the act, and he says, human life is like yesterday. It's like a watch in the night. It's like the lifespan of a blade of grass. It's like a sigh. And he says, and soon we fly away. That's not just a song that we used to sing. It actually is scripture. And then Isaiah says, uh, our life is like a shepherd's tent and it's, uh, he cuts me off from the loom, and God makes an end of me. 
Uh, God only allows us to live so long. And Job, he said, is swifter than a weaver's shuttle. We've all seen the, the third world women working with the weaver's shuttles and how fast they go, and pretty soon that rug is done. And then uh, Job says, it's swifter than a runner, a, a reed boat that slips by, a man fleeing away, or an eagle that swoops down. I went to the uh, Olympics in Atlanta, I forget when it was, back in 1990-something, and we got some tickets to a, the longboat contest. And so we were in the stands, and there a lot of hoopla from the different nations that were represented, and they had their flags, and they were all shouting their national names. And then the gun went off, and the boats began to race, and in two minutes, they'd sped past us, crossed the finish line, and the race was over. <laughs> is that all there is? I mean, it was over in a moment. And Job said, our life is like a reed boat that passes by. Another little illustration that I like, let me do this, is uh, pretend like you're a little mouse out in the cornfield and you've come across an entire ear of corn. And you feel like you're the richest little mouse that uh, God ever made. Then out of nowhere, an eagle swoops down, places its talons in you, and you become his lunch. And that's what Job says. Man's life is like an eagle that swoops down. All of a sudden, to steal a phrase from a popular movie, death from above. And it, it comes anytime. I'm, uh, when I was pastor, I had a lot of weddings, a lot of funerals, and I buried over 110 people. And so I did a study of the, uh, the records I had in my files, and it was interesting. One half of the people that I buried were 50 years old or older. One half of the people I buried were under 50 years. So, you know, we hope we all live a long time, and, but you just do not know. Uh, death can come suddenly. I'm talking about the brevity of life. And if we can get a grasp on just how short our life is, it's like we've got a bottle of vintage wine. It's, it's unique because most people don't pay any attention to how short their life is. And so what do they do? They misspend most of their life. Uh, actually, once you get the revelation of how short your life is, it increases the value of every minute to an infinite dimension because God's going to judge everything that comes into our life. Let me hurry on. Of course, the most popular one is in James 4, New Testament. It says our life's like a vapor, like on the end of a tea kettle. Whistles for a moment, it appears, and then it's gone. Now let's jump upstairs a little bit. If our life is short, and oh how short it is, the next thing on the docket is eternal judgment. Let's talk about some verses on eternal judgment. Uh, <clears throat> Hebrews 6 has a, a series of things that it calls the rudimentary things of the gospel. Eternal judgment is one of those things that everyone who's a Christian should understand. And Hebrews 9 says it's appointed to men once to die, and then almost immediately, it seems, comes the judgment. 
the judgment of God is the number one topic in the whole Bible. Uh, you don't hear many sermons on it. You don't hear hardly any conferences and seminars. And that, that's a bit of a befuddling thing to me because it's the number one topic in the Bible and it is mentioned three times more often than any other topic. Angels is the number two topic. So it's hugely important, or it's bigly important, as President Trump might say. Okay, Ecclesiastes 11 says God's going to bring everything in your life to judgment. Now, now get this, and there's, there's Bible behind all this stuff. Every thought, every word, every deed, and every motive is going to be factored into God's evaluation of your life and my life. And that should cause you to tremble. It does me because I've made so many mistakes and done so many wrong things. And thank God for the blood of Jesus that cleanses me. But I don't ever get a reward for having done things wrong. I get rewards for having done what God said to do or stopping what God said to stop. So the eternal judgment is a massive topic. And we're not even scratching the surface here. Matthew 25 says, uh, some will go away into eternal judgment, others into eternal life. Now, the word judgment there is negative, but judgment can be positive as well as negative. There's this great continental divide in the human race where some people are just assigned to heaven and some people are assigned to hell, and both are eternal, everlasting destinations. In Romans 2, it's really to the church, and he says, by your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Uh, most people don't think that verse is to the church, but it's 100% directed to the believers to walk straight and clear. And then 2 Corinthians 5 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul makes a great statement. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul had the fear of the Lord. Of course, we know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to depart from iniquity is the fear of the Lord. Uh, if you're not fearing God, you're back in kindergarten trying to learn the basics. And so when we appear before Christ, it made Paul tremble. It's like Moses said, I was full of fear and trembling. Paul said he trembled at the judgment seat of Christ. And what's his next response? This is so exciting to me. Well, as an evangelist, I have this consciousness that God's given me of heaven and hell every day. I don't ever not think of heaven and hell. I just, and so, and I think about my own condition, you know, like John Wimber, he had a funny line. He said about himself, he said, I'm just a fat man trying to make it to heaven. And he said that for entertainment's sake, but he also said it theologically. Amen. He knew that he could step off the path and ignore the grace of God, and it would be in vain, or he could walk with Jesus and, you know, end up in heaven's glory. And so Paul said, I'm going to persuade as many people that they need to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, because I know the judgment seat of Christ is coming for myself. Okay, let me go upstairs a little bit here. If there's a brief life, and if there's an eternal judgment, and the answer is yes, there is, the next response should be to fear the Lord. Uh, these build on, the, on one another. 
And then once again, there's, you know, hundreds of verses on this topic. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, by definition, is to hate evil pride, arrogance, and evil way. Most people define the fear of the Lord as this uh, kind of vague reverence for God. And, of course, it is that. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible defines the fear of the Lord. It says it's to hate evil. Well, why would hate be the definition for the fear of the Lord? Because down below, if you are involved in evil, pride, arrogance, and evil way, you're judged for it. So you get away from those things. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil, pride, arrogance. So God gave you the emotion of affection, and God gave you the emotion of hatred. And so he wants you to use this God-given emotion to hate the right things. And the thing we're supposed to hate as believers is evil in our own life, pride, arrogance. And of course, if, you, if you're an intercessor, you can learn to hate those things on a national scale like abortion. We should not be ambivalent and laissez-faire about that. We should hate that the same way God hates it. Uh, of course, we need to clean up our own backyard and take the log out of our own eye before we go hating other things. But really, God hates pride evil, arrogance, and evil. And that's what it means to fear God, because I know judgment's coming. Well, I'm going to get away from them. Uh, Jesus in Isaiah 11 delighted in the fear of the Lord. There are seven virtues of Jesus mentioned in Isaiah 11. One of them is the, and says he delighted in fearing God, hating evil. In Hebrews, it says Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Why? Because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. The coin has two sides. You cannot have a one-sided coin. We need to uh, hate evil as much as we love righteousness, actually. Uh, I'm going to have to hurry along here. I haven't got a clock in front of me. I guess I started at 11-ish. I'm okay. Uh, Matthew 24 and 25 are the last four teachings of Jesus, and the summation of them is be ready. And it's based upon the behavior of those who were his servants. Amazing set of teachings there. They all say exactly the same message. Be ready. Don't be unready. Uh, Luke 12 says, I tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who once having killed the body, has authority to cast body and soul into hell. And he tells us conversely, don't fear people for Pete's sake. All the people can do is kill your body. And then, you're, you know, it's over. So Jesus says, don't, don't. And if we're afraid of dying, then we are minimized as a servant of Christ. When we fear death, that's the wrong fear because everybody dies. I had a little brother who died in a fire when he was 28 years old. I got the news on the telephone. It was the worst pain of my life. Dropped to my knees and from somewhere deep inside, it wasn't a thought out prayer at all. I said, God. I don't care that he's dead. Everybody dies. Where in your holy name is he? That's true for everyone. Because everyone dies. And where do they go is the only question that really matters. By the way, he's in heaven. Hallelujah. Uh, where am I? <laughs> So we're talking about the fear of the Lord being the natural outgrowth of knowing there's an eternal judgment. 
And the eternal judgment is magnified because we know our life down here is just so brief. And we only have so much time to uh, do the will of God to reap rewards. Okay, reading down a little further here. Hebrews chapter 2 says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the Hebrews is full of all kinds of warnings. Hebrews 3 says, take care, brethren, lest any of you fall away from the living God. So you can come to Christ, and then if you don't employ the grace God supplies, you can actually fall away. It's called, in, actually in Matthew 24, one of the signs of the end times is called the great falling away. That's where multitudes of people who previously walked with Christ walk away from Christ. And God's not to be blamed in any of that. Uh, Hebrews 4 says, let us fear you may seem to come short of the promise. And there's much more behind these single phrases, of course. And uh, Hebrews 10 says, God will judge his people. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Most people I talk to think that Hebrews 10 text is talking about sinners. And of course it is, but not in context. In context, Hebrews 10 is talking straight to the Hebrew Christians. And uh, so we want to make sure we're walking in the fear of the Lord. First Peter 1, I love this verse. It says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, then conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. So there's just a few scattering verses, a uh, smattering of verses that uh, will hopefully gender more fear of the Lord in your life. And this is part of the message that we preach because I, I, I know I've, I meet people all the time who come to Christ with a real poor gospel presentation. It's like the Holy Spirit doesn't need much. I got saved because I read a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car. I was walking down the street, formerly an atheist in college, and I've become convinced because I saw the Rocky Mountains, well, there must be a God. This can't have just happened. So I'm back in my hometown, and I'm walking down the street after another crazy Christian had told me Jesus is the way, Jesus is the way. And I heard that for four years in college. I said to God, I said, God, I know you're real, but these Christians are driving me crazy. All I hear is Jesus is the way. If that's true, you're going to have to show me, God. I opened my eyes. The first thing I saw was a bumper sticker. It said, Jesus is the way. <laughs> and that's the moment I was born again. That sounds simplistic, childish, infantile. No, no, no. It was a sincere prayer with a direct answer from God. Well, that's it. Jesus is the way. After all, I was wrong for 21 years. Those Christians were right. Now, what's the point? People can get saved in the most unusual, bizarre ways. I could talk to you for an hour of crazy ways people got saved. But <laughs> we don't want to intentionally present a gospel that's not clear. And so when we talk about Jesus, it's not wrong to talk about him being Savior and also being judge and how he's going to evaluate everyone's life. And so you desperately need a Savior because your life is a wreck. As they say, you're a hot mess. Let's just talk about 10 of your sins that you do. <laughs> well, they can come up with more than 10. So it produces a fear of the Lord in them. And if they have at least a modicum of the fear of the Lord, then their salvation prayer will have much more sincerity on it. And as Ray Comfort says, they'll see they're actually being saved from something, which is the wrath to come.
I got about three more minutes, so let me hurry on here. Once you have a understanding of the brevity of life and the eternal judgment that looms right ahead of you, then you begin to fear the Lord properly and you pursue peace with all men. That means you forgive everyone who's ever done you dirty and holiness, which we just talked about. And here's a bunch of verses. This is a catcher. Hebrews 12 says, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, Matthew 6 says, forgive us as we forgive others. I know people have been to hell. I know a lot of people have been to hell. And uh, a number of them come back and said they saw people there who refused to forgive. And they violated the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if you forgive your brother from your heart, God will forgive you. If you don't forgive your brother, neither will your heavenly father forgive you your sins. Just to forgive. Uh, so you pursue peace with all men and holiness. Uh, you're in the upper strata here a little bit. 1 Corinthians 7, once you get the fear of the Lord, you perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now, going to the top, once this becomes a, a lot, of course, it's a daily process, and, and God gives tons of grace, so you actually walk in the fear of the Lord, and you, and you walk in forgiveness, and you bear fruit along the way, and then the final stage is you see God. Now, you want to see him favorably. You don't want to see him unfavorably. Matthew 5 says, the pure in heart will see God. It says it also in those verses in Romans and Galatians. Matthew 7 says, the gate's small and the way's narrow that leads to life. And there are actually few who find it. Uh, Noah and his family were eight people out of the millions on the planet that were saved. Lot and his two daughters, not his wife, were the three people out of the probably tens of thousands of people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Few there be who find it. Be amongst those few. Uh, Matthew 25 says, God will say to those who uh, have lived with him and for him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things, enter the joy of your master. And then Peter gets in on the act. In his letter, he says, if you practice these things, and you have to look at the Bible to find out what they are, there will be an abundant entrance ministered to you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures that are just crystal clear. Uh, you're looking for a bride, uh, and you want her to be uh, wrinkle-free and spot-free. Lord, we're not. So we just plead your blood over our sins and the sins of our nation. We pray you'd end abortion and send revival to America. God, we want to walk with you the way your son Jesus walked with you. So pour grace upon us. And as we preach the gospel to people who don't know you, help us include an element of the necessity of holiness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Hal. Thank you, Hal, so much. That was like a nice, strong cup of coffee. It was a word-filled boost, a great explanation in that way. And uh, we had a, a couple of requests, um, even asking how they could get a copy of that document. Is yeah, it something that they can uh, contact you or that you have posted on your website? Yeah, if you shoot me an email, I will send you a copy of this and a couple of other uh, teachings that I have that would be along the same lines. Fantastic.
So uh, thank you very much. Um, if you're able to, um, obviously hang around with us and we'll have a, a brief yeah. time of prayer at the, uh, the end of the next session. Um, I have also included um, links to our Facebook, YouTube channels, and our um, podcast, as well as the ministry links for Hal again in, in the chat. So everybody take a look there. And then now for uh, our next guest, we'll pass it over to Grant to introduce uh, his dear friend. Thanks again, Hal. Thank you, Hal. Thanks, Sat. Um, our next guest uh, is uh, the leader of uh, Tikkun um, America. He's the president of Tikkun America. And uh, just want to tell you, uh, Tikkun is a messianic ministry. But uh, in addition to it being a messianic ministry, it's also uh, very fivefold focused uh, in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if you're looking to connect with a messianic body, really encourage you to want to connect with Tikkun. They have such a great love for the church, fellowship and unity. And I've been walking with Ben personally for many years. And interestingly enough, Ben and I were, um, Ben has just come here from Israel. He's spent the last several years of his life with his family in Israel. And now he's been sent back to, to establish greater growth for Tikkun in America. You know, we were on a phone call just recently and we were talking about this whole move of John 17. And Ben started sharing um, about this place of flexibility in the body and how it's so important for us to 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 be open and less rigid and you know and the conversation i said ben i said you should teach this brother this is like hot so here we are today and it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, uh my dear brother uh, the, the the president of tikkun america benjamin Justin. Thank you so much, dear Grant. Uh, I really uh, appreciate the invitation to share with you all and those who might be uh, listening later on online through the streams and recordings. Um, you know, as Grant was alluding to, we're part of a much wider family in uh, the Tikkun ministry affiliation. Uh, Tikkun Global is the, is the, I guess, the, the umbrella that unifies us all together. And there are great, great teachings and resources about Israel, about uh, the church, about our unity together, and uh, the approaching last days. We don't know the day or the hour, but just uh, our view of, of the apostolic and prophetic uh, restoration that is helping to bring about these times. And, uh, you know, I'm not getting into the depth of theology, but I encourage you to go and um, visit tikkun.tv, T-I-K-K-U-N.tv, as well as the other ministries that are affiliated, and you'll learn quite a lot. Um, so it is uh, really a pleasure to be with you all today, and thank you all, I think, above all, for prayer and for connecting to the prayer movement that is going on during these 10 days of awe. And if you've done any study about the season, it is a season of repentance, a season of turning back to God. We know that there's a, a big event coming up on Saturday. Uh, called The Return, where we're going to gather together and just seek the face of the Lord on our knees and pray for him to heal our land. And I would say, because it's a global initiative to heal our lands, um, each people group can cry out for God to uh, redeem them and to restore that which had been lost. And, you know, one of the global shifts 
that we've been witnessing this past 20 years really is not just in this pandemic of this year. That's really changed a lot of things. But the thing that is astounding to see is the birth of prayer movements around the world. Prayer movements, these are not just localized, individual, church-led prayer initiatives. I'm, I'm thinking back even to the 100-year the prayer movement um, of Zinzendorf that was locate, located in Germany. Now, it had an effect all around the world, but it was primarily a local effort with some other pocket offshoots. But what I'm talking about is a global shift of the church, the body of believers across the world to come together to pray and to see God move in the world, in our cities, in our communities, in our workplaces. And this, I, I believe, is a tremendous sign of the times that we are living in and a foreshadowing, I believe, of something that's supposed to multiply. I would say that there are even millions of believers that have been joining in and participating in these prayer movements with the onset of the COVID-19 coronavirus, we've even seen Zoom calls and online live streams draw hundreds of thousands of people. And it's an exciting thing to, to just be caught up in, swept up in, if you will. But you know, sometimes I've been, as I've traveled around and as I've been participating in these events, I've, I've spoken with people who are really unsettled. And they would even be concerned about where these movements are headed, not all of them, but some of them, and don't want to be associated with the various leaders or, or denominations that have also been uh, maybe getting airtime or screen time or participating. And um, it got me to thinking. It also got me to thinking about the many times that there are outright attacks, vicious attacks, against the leaders of these prayer movements, sometimes on theological grounds. I mean, there's entire social media pages and websites that are dedicated to calling out errors in theology and doctrine. How many of you have seen those, those social media sites that just seem to always focus on the negative aspects of these ministries rather than the tremendous fruit of repentance and prayer and revival that are, that are going up to, to God all over the world? And now, sometimes these accusations are based on alleged character issues or moral failures. And of course, we want there to be accountability and integrity in the body. And we want to see leaders who are humble to be able to receive correction. And then even in some cases removed if there is proven serious sin. But I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about that which distances and divides us from one another. Because my proposal is that the scriptures require us to be more open and flexible than what we typically will do, especially when we talk about those higher purposes of unity. Of faith. Unity seems to be an even more important value. Again, I might stir some uh, pots and ruffle some feathers. It seems to be a more important value than even the excellence of our doctrine. And we are warned so many times in the New Covenant apostolic witness against division. And yes, doctrine is important. And yes, doctrine does prevent us from going into heresy. We do need to have some things that are non-negotiable. But does our doctrine prevent us from the fellowship 
and unity among other believers. I think that these prayer movements are God's call to his bride, not just to a denomination, not just to a network stream, but a worldwide cry and call. It's a shofar blast, if you will, for us to come together and seek God's face. And I, in my experience, have seen that when people gather in prayer, God breaks down the barriers of relationship and even doctrine. Because when revival hits, let's be honest, we don't have time to do the finer points of teaching on doctrine. We are wanting people to enter into a transforming relationship with Jesus. We want them to be filled with the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, will teach us and remind us of all things. So at the proper time, doctrine does come in. But I think the initial emphasis that is right now is repentance, turning our hearts to him, prayer, and revival. The question of ecumenism is not new. Um, you know, ecumenism meaning the seeking to recover that apostolic sense of unity in the church among our diversity, Jew, Gentile, nations, tongues, tribes, but that we are seeking to build unity among the bride. And I want to take a look briefly at the biblical approach to this ideal, just to, just to carry the weight of it uh, as we consider the implications for the day that we are living in. First off, we know, and as, John, as uh, Grant alluded to in John 17, I want to read this, uh, starting in verse 20. It says, and this is Yeshua praying. We, we know that, that when Yeshua prays, his prayers have a certain weight. Amen? I mean, like when he was walking the earth, if anyone's prayers were supposed to be paid attention to, we know that the, the son himself was praying in alignment with the father. And he says, I pray not on behalf of these only, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Now, who is that? Who are those who are with Yeshua? Those are his disciples, those who, are, who he is preaching the message to directly. But then he also prays for all those who believe in him through his message. That includes everyone, folks. This is the, this is the challenge that we have, is if Yeshua himself is praying that unity would be among all of the people that would hear this message, then all means all. If we're not walking at some level in unity, then that means that we're not fulfilling yet uh, that prayer. So it says, just as you, Father, continuing on, are in me and I am in you, so also may they be one in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, our testimony is so important that as we are representatives of the king, representatives of who Jesus is and the fulfillment of this prayer, it's much more important that we know and represent him than we know about doctrine. Okay, there is this, it's a nuanced distinction, but our relationship with Jesus and the love that we're able to demonstrate means more to people than the ability to repeat or teach doctrine. And the, the, the verse following is very telling in verse 22 and 23 of the same chapter. It says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, and I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. 
How is the world, I'm talking about the world, the carnal, uh, agnostic, or even disillusioned world, supposed to encounter the true God of love who created the world for relationship's sake, not for some uh, biosphere of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. But how are we supposed to show that love if among ourselves we don't even attend prayer meetings of those that don't share the same doctrinal faith that we do? I would say that a little loosely because again, there are non-negotiables. The divinity of Yeshua, his death and resurrection, his atoning sacrifice. The, there are things that we cannot negotiate on. I'm not talking about some universalism. But what I am saying is that all too often, we will allow our eschatology, the way that we carry out Torah by the Holy Spirit, or the way that we live our life, to dictate whether or not we fellowship with one another. And there are strong, strong admonitions about that in the apostolic witness. Division diminishes our representation of the glory of God. I want to repeat that. Division diminishes our representation of the glory of God in the world. Because we have his glory, when we then in turn show disunity and a lack of love and deference for the other, even with these differences, then we actually diminish our representation. Of course, we can't take anything away from God's glory. He's all glori glorious. But what I'm saying is our representation of that glory to the world is diminished. I want to turn now to the apostolic purpose. If we look in Ephesians 2.20, we know the verse that all of the body has been built on the foundation made up of the apostles and prophets, with Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone. So when you build a building, I don't know how many of you are architects or in the construction field, but where you build the foundation is also where you build the superstructure right? It's an obvious statement. If I spend all the time to build a foundation, to pour the concrete and have all the forms in the right place and to put the rebar and to make sure that the strength of that structure will be there, I don't then go and move 50 feet to the left or the right and build my superstructure there. The foundation of the apostles and prophets is very important for how we build and even more important is that that first cornerstone, especially in ancient construction, that sets the plumb line and the foundation for everything else. So that cornerstone is very important. So then we, we continue on in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. It says, he himself, which means Yeshua, he's, he's talking about Yeshua. He himself gave some to be apostles, some as prophets, some as proclaimers of the good news or evangelists, and some as shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service, some translations say ministry, for the building up of the body of Messiah. So my question is, for those who have social media sites completely dedicated to deconstructing the ministries of other people, does that represent well the faith and unity that we're supposed to have? It's a question. I'm not saying that doctrine is not important. There's a forum, but the, the check in our heart should be when we communicate, are we building up the body of Messiah or are we seeking to tear down some of it? This continuing on in Ephesians 4, 
this will continue, meaning the ministry of the fivefold, until we all come to unity of the faith and the knowledge of Ben Elohim, the Son of God, to mature adulthood into the measure of the stature of Messiah's fullness. You see, part of the proof of apostolic ministry or fivefold ministry is whether or not there is a fruit of building unity among the body. I would be wary of the apostolic streams that build unto themselves, but yet have no unity with other global movements. And the reason for that is because Yeshua himself prayed for unity among his bride. Now, in a very ironic sense, what is the Antichrist spirit? The Antichrist spirit is also to build up a global movement. It's to build up a global church that is against who Jesus is his atoning death, resurrection, and the life that we have in him. So it's, a, it's an alternative counterfeit ca structure to what Yeshua's intention is. I'm not talking about governmental apostolic authority taking over the whole world. What I'm talking about is a unity of the body with Yeshua as the head, that we come together to seek his face and to carry out his kingdom purposes in the world. That's what real apostolic ministry is. It's a service to the body. It's not about some kind of governmental structure that takes over control. Very important. So how do we pursue this unity of faith? It does, when we go broad, sometimes we have to go thin. What do I mean by that? Well, within your family, you might have very tightly held values of how you do things. But then you start to attend a community of faith and you recognize not every family lives the same way that you do. You have different ways that you carry out the standards of righteousness, morality, ethics, et cetera, within that community. But then if you broaden that to the church of the city or different denominational streams, you'll see that there's also differences. And how much more so when we talk about the worldwide church or the body in a nation. So there are distinct differences. But we still want to seek for unity wherever it can be found. This is, this is the statement that you'll hear uh, within the Tikkun leadership. My father also teaches on this, is that we want to be a church-loving people. We love the entire body. And it's funny that in my background, I went to a Messianic Jewish elementary day school. I went to a um, non-denominational high school before transitioning to a Baptist high school and then went to a charismatic college, and then a Messianic uh, Jewish master's program. So I've, I've experienced a wide slice of the body of believers and love it all. I see that there are differences. I see that there are things that I agree with and I don't agree with, but how do we pursue unity of faith within that context? Well, sometimes we have to go thinner on what our own doctrinal preferences are. Or maybe doctrine's not the right word. Maybe our own orthopraxy, the way that we carry out the, the, the commands of scripture. We have to be a little bit more flexible. So the charge for the community of faith in the scriptures is very interesting. Um, how, how recently, it seems like in my lifetime, it's only been getting worse, but our culture has been marked by tremendous divisiveness political issues, moral and ethical issues, race and culture, economy, how we walk out health and medical care and what the rights are and responsibilities. And then of course, 
church issues like eschatology and who is Israel, these big questions, who will be saved, church and religious expression. But you, do you realize that in the culture that we are part of, even within the body of believers, we almost draw a line in the sand and choose sides to where we say, if you believe this, then I cannot fellowship with you. Or if you hold to that position, then we cannot be friends. And friends, this is so sad. It is so diminishing of the glory of God for his people. And this is what I want to challenge us with today is to search for where we might be doing that. Not again, it's nuanced. I'm not saying that we don't have standards. I'm saying, what is the higher value and how do we bring the body together for these greater purposes? And so point one, how do we do this? We need to find a higher purpose. We need to find a higher purpose. I'm not saying that the, the purposes of, of these other issues are not important, but what is God's higher purpose in this? Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 says, but now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. Who, who here was once far off? I was once far off, even though I was raised in a believing home. I have been far off from the Lord. And I had to have my own personal encounter with him to repent and accept his sacrifice for me. Then I was given new life and I was brought near. But every believer was once far off before they accepted his lordship and his salvation. And now we are brought near. So we can identify with that as an important purpose is to bring others near to him. Later on, you know, he's talking in this context about the relationship of Jews and Gentiles coming to unity. But I want to propose that that's supposed to be a model for global unification of the body as one bride. Because certainly if the Jew and the Gentile can have unity once again and tear down that wall of partition, then we can have these different church streams and denominations come together at some level in unity. Amen? So... Uh, Paul speaks very strongly against division. He says some in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says some having missed the mark have turned away to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the Torah, even though they don't understand what they keep saying or what they so dogmatically assert. Another verse says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies. And the law or the Torah, for they are unprofitable and useless. Dismiss a quarrelsome person after the first and second warning, knowing that such a person is twisted and sinning, they are self-condemned. That's from Titus 3, verses 9 through 11. And the obvious two points from that are, we are commanded to avoid discussions that lead us down the path of creating rifts in the body. And especially those ones that are foolish controversies and disputes about those minutiae about the law because of they create a, a kind of dividing line. Are you with me in my agreement with this standard that I'm setting or my interpretation, or are you with them? And we know that how strongly they talked about those who would follow Peter or follow Apollos or follow Paul. No, it's not a divided body. It's a body in unity in Messiah. 
Marriage is hard, folks. I've been married now for 21 years. It, in many ways, has gotten easier, but it has been a journey. Now, I love my wife. I love family. I love having a family. But um, when you throw two different people of different backgrounds, and I'm not talking even different cultural backgrounds. Many of us have that. But when you have different backgrounds, different family beliefs, personalities, or even the way that you were nurtured, it is like two trains possibly coming together when you come together in a marriage. It can be very difficult. These diversities or these differences, when they enter close proximity to relationship, they rub us the wrong way and create irritation and even can create division. What is one of the main reasons given in divorce? Irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. Folks, do we have irreconcilable differences with other believers that are right down the street from us or that are seeking, you know, to be, yeah, they're not perfect. None of us are, but they're seeking to be in relationship with our heavenly father. How can we come as, alongside of them to build relationship? And my point is this, we need to see the higher purpose. That's our point. That just like a marriage, those two people in the marriage have to say, ah, you know what? It's more important that we love and protect one another than it is that we do things in exactly the way that we've always done them. It's actually more important for our children that we demonstrate love to them than that we have full agreement on parenting or full agreement on our theology or full agreement. You, you understand what I'm saying? Now, this is a great analogy for the body. Because I believe that for the body, it is more important that we are able to demonstrate the love and unity of the Father in Yeshua than the other things that we've been focusing on. So a couple more points. We need to embrace our common identity to see ourselves as part of the same team. Some other verses that I'll have you reference later on in your own study. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, which talks about how we comport ourselves in humility and gentleness towards one another. Ephesians 4.16, about how we're one body fitted together. And when we see ourselves as one body, we're more likely to have compassion towards one another and come alongside one another. The third and last point I want to give is that we need to create a sense of urgency. When we are facing emergencies or hardships, it's amazing the fertile ground for unity that that is. The urgency of a situation can necessitate that we come together for protection, for survival, or even accomplishing an impossible goal, like going to the moon. And if you study complex systems and complex team dynamics, what you'll find is this is a real kingdom principle, is there was a sense of urgency that led to a unification and a higher purpose. That there was such a, you know, I look at the fires in California and the firefighters and community members and others who have been gathering together to fight these fires and to protect the community. There's a sense of camaraderie and, and, and um, community within the midst of that, even though it's a tragedy because of the sense of urgency. And so what I want to leave you with today is that the call to prayer, the call to repentance is an urgent call. 
because of the days are ever more growing shorter and we don't have time to miss what God is doing and wants the body to do in this hour. We know that in the book of Joel in, in chapter two and chapter three, it talks about calling a sacred assembly in a fast so that God may be gracious and compassionate to us. And so that he may in turn relent from the judgment that's planned and have pity on us. And, and this is not just for the people of Israel. See, the context is both for the people in the nation of Israel, but then we know, as it says in Joel 2.28, so it will be afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And I would say daughters as well, because it's all flesh. And I want to say that that is the call. That is the opportunity that we're being given as a body is to step into a place of unity where we can repent, call for God's favor, and have him pour out the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. Amen. Amen. Ben, could you uh, uh, pray into that for us, brother? Yes. Yes, we'll do. Abba, Father, I thank you so much for this picture. Um, Lord, I, I don't claim to have everything perfectly even stated today. I believe these are the, the inspiration of your spirit. But Lord, I pray that you would help us each to search our hearts and to ask ourselves, where have we um, put up walls to the rest of the body that is not of you, that is not really righteousness, but it's, it's, a, it's a counterfeit. And I pray, Father, that instead you would give us such a spirit of compassion, of love for the whole church, of love for the body, and a seeking for unity that would usher in the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. We don't want something that's just localized to a city, though we bless that and we call for as many of those as possible. But what we want to see is a sweeping forward so that your glory may cover the earth. And whether it be today or tomorrow or a year from now, Lord, we will give no rest until we see it. We want to see your kingdom come. We want to see your glory in the earth, and we want to see the love among your people, your bride, in Yeshua's name. Amen.